When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Football Social Daily. Hello and welcome to the Football Social Daily Premier League podcast. Project Restart is underway, but we've never really stopped. We've kept going throughout the whole of lockdown and we're as excited as anyone that it's back and up and running. Remember to subscribe to the show and you'll get a brand new episode every 24 hours covering all things uh, Premier League. My name's Ant McGinley and joining me in the studio of sorts today because we're all doing this remotely, uh, I have senior football writer at the uh, MEN, uh, that's Ty Marshall. Hello. Hello, how are we? I'm doing very, very well. And we've also got broadcast journalist with the Sports Social and Arsenal fan, Fergal Brennan. Hello, good morning, good afternoon, hello. And uh, just for full disclosure, I'm a Man City fan. So let's start with uh, a, a game that I believe Ty was at yesterday, which I'm very excited to ask not so much about the football, but about the experience of being at one of these games. It was uh, Man United against Norwich in the FA Cup. United went through in extra time against the 10 men of Norwich. Uh, Ty, your your views on the game? Um. It was a very poor game, wasn't it? It, um, it? it started slowly and got slower, really. I think it was the most pre-season-y feel to one of these games that, that we've had so far. Obviously, with no crowds there. They all feel a little bit like a, a training game with a lot on the line, but it, it just felt really slow. I thought Solskjaer took a huge risk with his team selection and, and just about got away with it. But to make eight changes, six of those players were, were starting for the first time since March. So it was inevitable there was going to be some rust, but rather than shaking it off, they just seemed to get rustier as the match wore on. And I think they were fortunate to get away with it. The, the drinks break in the first half was um, was very much unwarranted considering the way it had, had panned out. And it was the first half especially was just such a disappointing performance from United. They, they were fortunate to get through in the end. I thought the last, once Norwich had equalised for the last 10 or 15 minutes, they, they looked to the more threatening side until the red card. And... After that, I think United were always going to find a way through. But it was a risk with that team that, that Solskjaer picked and he just about got away with it. But I think it highlighted how 
limited his options are. We saw how good they were in the first 11 were against Sheffield United in, in midweek when they were absolutely excellent. Excuse <coughs> me. Um, but here, the, the backups just, just didn't perform and, and the drop-off between those regular starters and, and the rest was, was quite frightening, to be honest. Are you suggesting that the drinks break shouldn't be an automatic thing that comes in and should only be given if they perform well enough? Like a little yeah, treat? I mean, maybe that would be a nice twist, wouldn't it? Like the referee can decide <laughs> if you've earned a drink. Be a nice little like a nice little plot twist. I mean, I can I can understand it on with the games on Wednesday, especially the six o'clock games when it was thirty degrees and we were all sweating in the back garden. Never mind playing football, but here it it was. Um, yeah, it did seem a little bit pointless. The more interesting is almost tactical breaks now, aren't they? You see the managers come onto the pitch and it's like who can get their ideas across better in in forty five seconds. They've almost developed into into timeouts rather than drinks breaks. Yeah, and I did hear a thing in commentary, uh, I can't remember which game it was, where they said, you know, it's the first time I've ever heard that, and, and obviously this is potentially something that we'll remember in years gone by, was well, a great time to score just before the drinks break. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're, before half-time is a great time to score now as well, so there must be, there must be three good times to score now. Yeah, uh, no, for, Change the game. For, for Norwich, uh, again... You know, th- there's there's a lot to see and a lot to like about Norwich, but then at the same time, like, th- is there anything for Norwich fans to look forward to at all after that? Um, no, not really. They're, they're going down, aren't they? Uh, I mean, I think I've said on here before that they are. A, they're a nice team to watch. They're easy on the eye. Thought Todd Cantwell played really well yesterday, and they did cause United problems. When Norwich had possession in the final third, they looked a lot more dangerous than United did. While both teams had eleven men, and and they do, they, you know, they do play some really good football, and credit to them for that. But they're just too easy to play against. I think they they play this nice, expansive style that that was superb in the Championship. But the recruitment was was very unambitious in the summer, and I think they were always going to going to struggle in the Premier League. And as as good as they've been to watch, to watch, you know that. If only the 20th team in the Premier League could always be this good to watch, it would be a more entertaining league. But sadly for Norwich, it also means that, that by being good to watch and by being open and expansive, it's, it's going to cost them their place in the Premier League. Now, this game was uh, like all the games on free-to-air TV with the, the BBC yesterday. And so there's a lot of uh, social media that comes around with it. But there was a lot of negative social media about that first half. Uh, about it being a really dreadful game. I wonder if uh, Ollie was actually reading those messages and uh, reacting to them because he ended the game with five forwards on. Uh, Fergal, do you think this is the the way that United should be going with the, with the running? Or... Um, it depends. I think as as Ty rightly says, Norwich. That was the most Norwich performance that Norwich ever Norwiched yesterday. Of uh, nice patterns of play and Campbell scored a really good goal, but ultimately, when it really gets to the belly of the game, they just kind of haven't really got that little bit extra to, to get over the line. As for United, um, it was very much we want to get this done in normal time. Okay, we can't. We want to get it done in extra time, and he just threw striker after striker on. Um, I think in terms of the games that are left to play, yeah, I think they have to be front foot forward. Um, I think the defence may be coming for a little bit of unfair criticism. I think their clean sheet record is, is fairly solid. Harry Maguire and Aaron Wan-Bissaka have come in and improved the team. Uh, Solskjaer's alternated between a back four and a back five and Shaw playing inside, allowing Brandon Williams to play a, a wing back. But I think United's strongest suit is, is going forward. We know that. 
We know that with the likes of Rashford, Martial, Greenwood, Igalo getting a goal yesterday, Pogba coming back, Bruno Fernandes. Um, I think there is only one way that United can play between now and the end of the season. I think over the summer, Solskjaer will sit down and, and maybe look to re-strategize about how he plans to, to work in 2020-21. But I think given the firepower that they've got, and we saw that yesterday, yeah, it took a Harry Maguire four-yard scuff to go in. But th- there was a stage in extra time where there was six players just standing on the edge of the Norwich 18-yard box. And I think for all the improvements that Maguire and, and others have brought at the back... United have to be a little bit more proactive in these in these coming weeks because they're not the favourites to get top four. Chelsea are in that position at the moment. Leicester have slipped, but they still have to do a bit more slipping to be to be out of the race. Wolves are in excellent form. Um, so if United are going to get into the top four, then they need to play to their strengths, which is we've got all these goal-scoring possibilities in the squad. Try and get as many of them on the pitch at the right time of the game as possible. There's There's a question, though, that you've got five forwards on the pitch and yet it's Harry Maguire that gets the winning goal for you. Uh, was that just because it was a scrappy game, do you think? Or is it just that the confidence is low amongst some of those players? I think... I think it, oh, sorry. I was going to say, it's it's probably not a formation you ever practice, really. I, I said this at the time, that you can throw as many forwards as you like on, but fundamentally, there's only a certain amount of space that they're going to have, especially when Norwich... Uh, so defensively and I think with, with four strikers on and Fernandes and Pogba just behind them it was inevitable they were kind of going to get in each other's way at times it was almost like structure and patterns of play went out the window and it was just throw your best goal scorers on and hope one of them does a goal um, in the end it was Maguire that got it and he was the closest before that as well with uh, the header that Tim Krull saved but it was one of those where just sticking four strikers on is it's not necessarily a, a route to goal it's more a route to, to chaos <laughs> So, United, looking at them overall, um, they're through to the semi-finals of the FA Cup, first team through. Uh, they're in a great place when the Europa League returns, and they're challenging for that uh, automatic Champions League spot in the Premier League. So, question to both of you, is Oli turning out to be the great manager that he looked in those first 14 games? Um... <laughs> a, I'm glad you're going first time. Yeah, on. It's it's a it's a difficult one. They've certainly looked a lot better since kind of the end of January. I mean, it's it's fascinating that this 14 game unbeaten run now has come directly off the back of losing two 0 at home to Burnley, which was probably the absolute nadir this season. And, and the moment you thought this is not going anywhere, that just end it now. Whereas all of a sudden they they have improved considerably and I think he I think Solskjaer deserves a lot of credit for that because the quality of football they're playing now compared to the start of the season it, it, is night and day and the structure's a lot better the, the build-up's a lot better the patterns of play are a lot better and the performance against Sheffield United I thought was probably the best of the season especially going forward so I think there's there's certainly signs of light at the end of the tunnel if it was any other manager you'd probably say they are getting things right but we've got such <clears throat> such a limited sort of CV for to work on with Solskjaer and Obviously, he's never been anywhere like this before. Had an underwhelming spell at Cardiff. He's done okay at Molde, but none of us are really following the Norwegian league. So we know so little about his managerial credentials that it's difficult to say with any certainty that, that things are on the right track. But certainly, I think the way they've been playing in the Premier League um, with the first eleven suggests to me they are, they are moving forward and, and are on the right track. I think the next six Premier League games will, will probably tell us a lot because they're six games really that 
United should win and, and their games at the moment that if you want to have a challenge for the title in the next two years you, you can barely afford to drop points so United need to prove that if they're up to those levels they should be winning the next six Premier League games really so I think the running is probably a good, a good sort of litmus test of their credentials um, I would say that Solskjaer is the best manager that could have been realistically expected given United's situation uh, when he took over and I think if he meets the objective of getting to the top four and say winning one of either the FA Cup or the Europa or, or getting to the final I think that is what can be reasonably expected from, from Solskjaer and there'll be United fans listening to this and, and saying no I don't agree he's, he's been impressive you know every kind of point of criticism he's had he's answered but there's still massive questions over his ability um, to manage United when they get back to the level where they want to be. Um, I just I just do not see Solskjaer being in charge of a Manchester United team pressuring Liverpool or Man City for the title, competing in the knockout stages of the Champions League. And I realise that does sound a little bit unfair on Solskjaer because, as Ty said, when you look at his CV, we've got nothing to say that he can do that, but we've got nothing to say that he can't do that either. So it's, it is a difficult one to gauge, but I think... Solskjaer at the moment is the best version of Solskjaer that we could have expected, given the situation that United were in. And and let's be realistic, given what was expected of him when he came in, he was given a, a lot of um, time to kind of bed in and, and get his ideas in place. Obviously, he was afforded that due to the fact that he's a club legend. Um, let's not forget that that does generally buy former players a little bit of extra time at, at a big club. But I don't... I don't see him being the man to drive United on another couple of levels, which ultimately is what the club and the fan base will be demanding in the next 12 or 18 months because I just I just don't see it in terms of tactics. I don't see it in terms of uh, profile. And, and I know that shouldn't count, but it does It does count when, when you talk about the top European side, the top European managers. Um, but I think if he gets into the top four and gets a trophy... Uh, and I don't mean this to to sound like it's like a a pat on the head for Solskjaer but I do think that would be an excellent achievement for him given his CV and given the profile of manager he is that that is just the fact as as Ty said a manager of mould and a disastrous manager of Cardiff City to win the FA Cup and get Champions League football is a big achievement Well people do say that you learn from your mistakes and maybe he just learnt a lot from his time uh, Cardiff. Before we leave this game, I just want to speak to you, Ty, about the experience of actually going to a game in these strange times. Because obviously they're limited. You're looking at maybe around two, only 200 people, including all the playing staff, being at one of these games. What was the experience like for you? Because it's certainly been new and different for us watching on the TV. Yeah, it's um, it is very very strange. Um, I mean, we were sat. A lot of these clubs, they're letting 25 written media into every game, which is far more than the Bundesliga, which is 10, I think, and La Liga, which is six. But because of the, the social distancing measures they have to have in place, a lot of these clubs don't have big enough press boxes to fit everyone in. So at Norwich, the written media were all in a, a suite last night behind um, behind some, some glass. So we couldn't hear necessarily what, what the players were saying on the pitch, which is probably the one kind of bonus of these games that you can hear. Like on Wednesday night, Harry Maguire swearing at Luke Shaw and, and telling him to switch on. So we couldn't really hear any of that last night. But yeah, the experience is um, it's very weird. Obviously, you've got to wear a mask at all times. And as soon as you park up, you arrive last night in the car and, and tell them who you are. And while they're checking, you're, you're accredited. They're, they're taking your temperature, pointing this kind of gun machine at your head and, and quickly checking your temperature. And 
telling you that you're, you're allowed in and then you have to fill in a questionnaire on arrival to, to say you've not had any symptoms or not been around anyone that's had symptoms. So it is, um, it is very unusual. And then, yeah, you have to wear these, these masks. We got sent some masks at work before doing games and they're um, kind of like the, the blue NHS, very clinical masks rather than anything that's, that's adding a bit of style to your look. But I found that, um, I mean, it's been a while since, since we guys were in the same studio, but if you can remember what I look like with um, a bit of a... <laughs> A bit of a beard and glasses. The, the masks aren't designed for that um, that particular look. It was a bit bit itchy on the beard, and every time you breathe, your glasses were steaming up. So, um, <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to be seen to complaining about the minor details when I am allowed into these games. But it was um, it was a case of holding your breath for most of the match to try and uh, to try and see what was going on. So it is, um, yeah, it is a very surreal experience. It was interesting yesterday that obviously the the, the subs are all sitting in the stands because because of social distancing in the dugouts. But Norwich's dugouts are so small that there was only really room for two people to be sat in them. So United had Solskjaer, Kieran McKenna and Michael Carrick sat in the stand behind the dugout as well, um, all three or four seats apart and, and trying to communicate that way. So it was um, it was an interesting setup that Solskjaer chose to, to sit in the stand and, and try and relay messages that way. But I think it's something that, that everyone is still trying to get used to, uh, the bizarre circumstances. Yeah, well, the social distancing, uh, no social distancing when celebrating seems to have gone out of the window. I noticed this the other night when uh, Kevin De Bruyne scored and straight away Mendy ran over to him and hugged him. Um, and obviously it just seems to be once you're on the pitch, kind of almost anything goes. But one final question about the experience. I understand that obviously because of what's happening, uh, they don't have any catering for the press anymore. So you have to bring a packed lunch with you. What did you bring with you for the game? <laughs> yes, that is um, that is a bit of a heartbreaker, to be honest. Um, I don't want to sound like a, a privileged football journalist here, but the experience of going to games in the Premier League, especially and, and being fed, is is almost worth a league table in its own. So um, <laughs> that is a, a bit of a, a bit of a disappointment. So yeah, I've, especially with the trip to Norwich. You know, I, I mean, I basically set off at 11 o'clock and got back at, at half one in the morning. So you're kind of needing three meals to take. So, uh, so yeah, I filled a picnic box with um, with various sandwiches and some sausage rolls, a couple of chicken drumsticks, uh, chocolate muffin, and and then some Maltesers for the uh, the last leg of the journey, and a flask of coffee. So, so yeah, it was like a little a little road trip and an adventure, really. But it would have been nice to have. Um, yeah, to have been fed by Norwich, but obviously the, it can't be done at the moment. All we had was a, a bottle of water, so it was. Uh, we were back to, to feeding ourselves, unfortunately. Well, if you ever decide to leave journalism, I'm sure you'd have a great career in catering with that selection. <laughs> it wasn't the healthiest. There was a lot of pastry going on. Hey, it's what what you need to get you through. Exactly. Uh, let's let's move from uh, Norwich and Man United then uh, to a team that's challenging Man United potentially, uh, both for the Champions League qualification and uh, could be facing them in the Europa League uh, when that returns. Uh, with that game in the Premier League yesterday, uh, Wolves are now three points ahead, having played a game extra, uh, although United have got better goal difference. At the other end, though, that result uh, does not do Villa any favours. Uh, they stay in real trouble, uh, level on points uh, with West Ham, and Bournemouth, uh, Watford just a point ahead of them. It's all a bit too tight down at the bottom. Yeah, I think when you look at uh, Aston Villa's situation, um, the money they spent at the start of the season, it was always going to be either a roaring success or another Fulham. 
and as we get towards the end of the season it's looking more like the latter um, there's still far too much rely, uh, reliance on Jack Grealish uh, he was good yesterday but you can see even with the, the the break that's come about with the season being suspended he looks knackered um, and I think the case with him and, and with certain other players is a mental tiredness as much as a physical tiredness uh, we all know if we all know that Aston Villa uh, need Jack Grealish to drag them out of the situation then you better believe that Jack Grealish knows that Jack Grealish needs to drag Villa out of this situation and that's a huge amount of pressure on a player in his first full season in the Premier League to be carrying on his shoulders and yes he is a brilliant footballer and, and his mentality and his leadership have, have come to the fore this season but it's a lot for him to do when it's quite clear that the rest of his side on the whole, are not really up to the task of um, of Premier League football. And I think the interview with uh, with Conor Howrahan a few weeks ago was quite telling, where he just bluntly said, "Yeah, Jack's probably going to leave because he's he's better than the rest of us." Um, Bizarre doesn't even begin to cover that. That was like a Sunday League comment. That was like Sean Bean in When Saturday Comes, uh, when they're in the pub and they're all like, <laughs> "Yeah, he's much better than us. He's going to go to Sheffield United." Uh, and then ensued, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. If you haven't watched it, watch it. Um, and I never thought I'd be comparing Jack Grealish and Sean Bean, but there you go. Uh, so yeah, so so uh, that's my that was yeah that's why I'm not allowed to do match reports anymore. Um, and I think that's the situation with Aston Villa. I, for me, the writing's on the wall for them. Uh, and you know, you can trot out the old cliches: don't score enough goals, not really good enough at the back, don't have enough experience. They tick all them boxes. And for as talented as Grealish is, up against the midfield uh, uh, Wolves yesterday of Neves and Dendonka, who, who's not even a regular for Wolves. He's shown the level that he needs to maintain consistently over a number of seasons, but he's also shown what a Premier League midfield is like and what a Championship midfield is like with one Premier League midfielder. Yeah, it, I mean, it, it's quite strange. It felt like the restart was a chance for these these clubs at the bottom to kind of press the reset button and and you know find a bit of momentum and, and have a good start. But none of them have really done it. Obviously, Norwich have lost every game. I know Villa had had a couple of draws and, and Norwich had the draw, uh, Watford had the draw with Leicester. It doesn't really feel like anyone at the bottom has, has made a move yet and it's not difficult to see why they're down there. With, with Villa, it does... They're kind of a little bit more... They're kind of maybe like a slightly more elite Norwich and that again, the, they played good football and you know I really like Dean Smith and what he's trying to do. I think the story of him managing his boiled club is, is fantastic, but... They really should be doing better this season for the money they've spent, and that they are so reliant on Grealish, considering the investment they made, is is not a good situation to be in. And when you end up that reliance on a player, and like Figo says, you, the player knows you're that reliance on him. There's almost a case that he's trying to do too much, and it can almost become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Really, that it's a case of everyone else thinks, "Give it to Jack, he'll save us," and, and Grealish thinks, "I've got to save us. Let's have a shot from 30 yards." So, it, they. they they do look at the moment, I think all the bottom three, look at the moment like teams who are doomed for relegation, really. Um, obviously, Bournemouth as well haven't, have, have had some poor results, so it does feel like none of them have, have yet made the move that you were perhaps expecting when the season restarted. Yeah, I think it's really interesting you just mentioning the money there, because obviously Villa spent, um, was it 120 million, something like that, they something spent like over that? that? Yeah. Uh, uh, whereas Norwich spent hardly anything. And yet you've got both those teams rooted at the bottom, which kind of would suggest that, you know, success is not connected to money at all in the Premier League. 
Uh, obviously, when you look ahead further up the table, Sheff- table uh, Sheffield United have been flying high, have not spent much, and other teams around them having spent a lot, uh, uh, you know, are, are not much further ahead of them. Um, the, let's talk about Wolves for a second, if we can. Uh, that win yesterday means since Project Restart, they're the complete opposite of those teams down the bottom. Three games in, four goals scored, non-conceded. Uh, there is something really good happening at Wolves in terms of running a football club, the recruitment, the way they're playing, the way they're developing players as well. Like uh, We always knew Traore was fast and strong, but the way he's come on this season and the way the team have been... I mean, arguably, they're the team that have benefited um, the most from the break because I think they were like, I don't know, 70 or 80 games into their season by the time the (laughs) the break came along. And uh, we all heard the stories of them flying back for the Europa League games with a specially designed plane that had cryo chambers in uh, so they um, they could start their recovery. But there's something really good happening there they are now having played a game more. They're just um, uh, one win away from third as it stands. Uh, three points behind Chelsea, two points sorry, two points behind Chelsea, and three points behind Leicester. Um, what is it? Just a perfect combination of things. There is it because they spent the money in the right place. Is Nuno Spirito Santo a genius? Have they just been lucky with the players they've bought? Can, can we put our finger on it? I think when you look at the spending that they've done over the summer, as well as being smart and addressing uh, certain issues, they've not chased names or they've not chased just transfers for the sake of transfers. They've looked at players that can genuinely benefit the team. And also they've got the added bonus in the example of Raul Jimenez, where he was on loan last season. Um you know, there's no better way for the manager to see if you're going to fit into the system by playing a full season of football and then going, hmm, yeah, I think I think we'll take you. Um, and and he's you know he's he's proven to be an excellent signing. He's broken his own uh, Wolves season goal scoring record last weekend. Um, and I just think there's there's so much balance tactically with them. Santo generally goes for a three five two, which is proved to be very successful for them in Europe and in the Premier League this season. But since they've come back, uh, he's gone with a back four, um, trying to work out a new system. Obviously, he's got so many players that are going to need to be rested and rotated and and what have you. And I think, obviously, we talk a lot about Jimenez and Adama Traore, Pedro Neto, Diogo Jota. But I'd just go for a quick word on Wolves' defence since they've come back. As you say, they've not conceded in three games. Um and big Willy Bolly, I think, has been a, a big part of that. He had a bad injury earlier on in the season um, and Santo had to kind of move his options around and, and play various people alongside Connor Cody. He's come back in and he's been excellent alongside Cody. Um, they match each other really well in terms of who will kind of go meet the ball, who will act as a sweeper. Um, and, and for me, that's that's been the key for them. The transfers that they made in the summer have not upset the balance of the team. Uh, you know, the old cliche of the balance of the dressing room, but also the balance of the, of the team. Nobody's come in and demanding, well, no, I want to play 10 yards further forward, so get the ball to me. It's a case of this is the system. If you're not able to play in this system, then Wolves isn't for you. And Santo has, has laid that rule down for, for every single player. If, you, if you're a high-profile figure like um, Jimenez or you're a, you know, a youth team player coming through, and Dendonka, who got the winner yesterday, is an example of that. He's massively highly rated uh, at Anderlecht and he's come in and he's not a regular because it takes time to adjust to, to Wolves' system, no matter whether you're a Belgian international or you're a, I don't know, a Belgian second division player. 
Yeah, they I mean they look a team that are just singing from the same hymn sheet at the moment, on and off the pitch. They they look they look like they know what they want to do. I mean they obviously benefit hugely from these these links with Mendes and, and the fact that Nuno and him obviously have a very special relationship and that that certainly helps with recruitment, but they have got the recruitment spot on and they're not signing star names for the sake of it. They're signing players that fit into a very structured system. Um, the job Nuno's done there has been, been absolutely sensational, but he has improved players as well. We mentioned Connor Cody there. He's he's flourished into an outstanding centre-half. Matt Doherty's one of the best full-backs slash wing-backs in the Premier League at the moment. And they they do look, they just look like a really complete side. I think Jimenez is, he, he is one of, if not the most complete centre-forward in the Premier League at the moment. I think he's just got absolutely everything as a number nine and a pure goal scorer. His movement's brilliant. His hold-up play's great. And, you know, he just he just looks like a, a serious player. And the use of Traore for, for two of these games back has been quite interesting. Using him on the bench and then bringing him on after after an hour or so. It, it's kind of almost like engaging a cheat mode, isn't it, when you can bring Traore on with half an hour to go when the opposition are tiring in these games and it's pretty hot. And then you see that absolute man-mountain come on and just running at you. I think we'd all be like, oh, go on then, mate. You, you do it. You go. And they're, you know, they're picking up some great results. And in, in that battle for a top four place, I think if I was Leicester, I'd start, I'd be getting very nervous because the the two the points they've dropped so far against Brighton and, and Watford could really hurt them because their running is is very difficult. Their momentum is completely stalled. And United, Norwich, uh, United, Wolves, and Chelsea are, are all picking up results and, and looking good all of a sudden. So I think I think Leicester are probably vulnerable in there, but. On the evidence of what we've seen so far, you wouldn't rule out a top four finish for Wolves. And the, with the way that the finances of other clubs have been hit during the pandemic, they might give them room to build on as well. They might have been expecting to lose Traore and maybe Jimenez and some others this summer. But now they, they probably don't need to sell. They're, they're, they've got rich owners, obviously some Premier League TV cash coming in. They could get Champions League football. So no one's going to be able to afford 80, 90 million for, for Jimenez or Traore. So it might give them a chance to keep these best players and build and, and go again next season and they could turn into sort of genuine top four challenges for a couple of seasons well there's a luxurious break coming up for both teams now neither of them play again till the weekend uh, Wolves welcome Arsenal and Villa have an almost nailed on guaranteed three points when they travel to Anfield <laughs> oh dear Uh, we're going to take a quick break uh, before looking ahead to the Monday night game that's Palace against Burnley plus we have Maradona news it's all next on the Football Social Daily Football Social Daily get daily news and updates on your team via your Amazon Alexa just ask Alexa open Sports Social Football Social Daily. Get daily news and updates on your team via your Amazon Alexa. Just ask Alexa. Open Sports Social. Welcome back to the Football Social Daily. Uh, We have one of these shows every day uh, covering everything that happens in the Premier League. Also as well, if you're not aware of this and you haven't done it already, uh, you can ask your smart speaker device uh, to bring you updates on your team just ask your alexa to enable sport social check your team and away you go uh, next up then we're going to look at two teams that in a time of social distancing couldn't be any closer together uh, 10th and 11th in the table on the same amount of points only two goal difference between them uh, crystal palace and burnley uh, come together uh, monday night 
Uh, Ty, you used to cover Burnley very closely, didn't you? I did, yes. I covered them for about three or four years until um, until about 18 months ago. And it, it was certainly a very good time to, to cover Burnley. It was um, a, a remarkably successful time for them with a couple of promotions from the Championship and that, that run in Europe. But it, it's, the last few weeks have kind of felt like an end of an era feel there. I, I think there's, there's obviously been open warfare, really, between the board and, and Deich with these contracts and not being renewed and I think they've been a little bit unlucky in the circumstances because probably in, in January, I mean no club should enter January with six senior players out of contract and they managed to sign Brady up before all this happened but they've now lost Hendrick and I think of, of the five that were out of contract when, when play resumed they probably wanted to keep Bardsley and Hendrick and would have probably let Hart, Lennon and Legstins go but obviously circumstances have, have kind of made them look a little bit amateurish with the way it, it's worked. Dice is a massive Jeff Hendrick fan, so he will be um, distraught at, at losing him. And I think the, almost the bigger issue now is, for this season, it doesn't really matter because they're safe and they've had another fantastic season for, for Burnley. To be 10th in the Premier League is is mightily impressive, but the question really is, how are you going to replace these players and, and build going forward? That's five senior first-team squad members you need to find from somewhere and they are a, they're kind of a model club in the way they run. They're very frugally run. They're, they count the pennies in and out. And they're, they're consistently making a profit. And but it, it makes signing players a battle. Every summer used to be a case of, of asking Dyche about transfer business and there'd be little subtle messages to the board about how they need to release the purse strings and there'd be no one signed until the start of August. Then suddenly three or four players would get over the line and it was the same sort of rigmarole every summer. But it sounds this year like with obviously revenues taking a big hit that there might not be that much to spend and when you've got so many players to replace and that's before you even look at kicking on I can see why there's going to be a lot of tension there and I think personally if if I was Sean Dyche I think I would consider walking this summer you can wow. see them already having a tough season next season and he's done such a good job there that it almost feels like one of those I know he's got two years left on his contract and obviously he'd, he'd lose out on that money but it feels like one where it's almost you walk now and, and protect your reputation. Let's, you know, go and remember the fantastic job you did for Burnley. And within six, eight months, I'm sure someone will have snapped him up as a, a free manager rather than have to pay pay his, his Burnley contract. But it does feel like the, the last thing he, he deserves is, is to stay and find that they're desperately short of numbers next year and are dragged into a relegation battle. He's He's done a brilliant job and to almost protect that reputation been there eight years or so now uh, I think it might be time to, to to part relatively amicably he's really sort of ingrained himself not just within the club but also within the community one of the pubs near the ground is has been renamed the yeah. Royal Daesh <laughs> where uh, I don't know if he goes in but apparently he if he ever does he gets to drink for free um so the the question is that obviously there's more to it than just the odd free pint. But Fergal, where, where could you see him going to? I mean, that that's I mean, obviously there's not a lot of spaces around at the minute. But in terms of uh, obviously he's done amazing things there. But in terms of the type of football that they play, which is a result of the resources that they've had, you could argue, um, you know, you're not going to see him suddenly being thrown into sort of take over at the likes of a a Chelsea or a Leicester, are you? No, no. And I think the unfortunate thing for Dyche is we all know he has had offers to leave. He was massively linked with Everton when they made the bizarre decision to go with Sam Allardyce instead of him. And I think that would have irked him a little bit. Um, I think he 
chose to stay loyal to, to Burnley and obviously at that stage there was very little different in terms of difference in league position between Everton and Burnley um, and there's so many as I say sliding doors moments in, in football because at the moment the teams that are kind of around Burnley or just ahead of Burnley have got a manager that doesn't look under pressure Wilder Santo Ancelotti there doesn't look to be a lot of changes there. The only potential probably could be uh, Steve Bruce with Newcastle. But if their expected takeover goes ahead, um, the new owners that are going to come in and, and throw around enormous sums of money, they're not going to bring in Sean Dyche as manager. So ultimately, I think because when the opportunities have presented themselves for Dyche, he stayed loyal to Burnley and, and he deserves a lot of credit for that. At the moment, if he was to leave, he'd probably have to take a step down. Um, to a, a lower Premier League club. Um, he, obviously, he's not going to go down to the Championship, but um, I think the only way this could maybe be repackaged if he's given a you know a so-called bigger club that's in a lower position than than Burnley, um, Aston Villa. I'm not saying he would go to Aston Villa, but that would be the kind of um, makeup of a club that you could see him linked with, a big city, a big club with a with a big history uh, domestically and in European football. Um, but I just think at the moment. Daesh and Burnley look look wedded to each other because right now Daesh can't do any better and Burnley are terrified that if they lose him, so much of what Burnley is about is Sean Daesh. Um, all the players uh, buy into what Daesh wants from them. If a new manager comes in, we've seen this so many times with, with teams that are mid-table, possible relegation candidates, change one thing, remove one Jenga block and it can all come crashing down. And I think Burnley are absolutely terrified of that. Um, but I think by allowing the likes of Hendrick to leave and, and one or two others uh, to enter into late contract territory, I think they've annoyed Dyche. Um, and I think the only way to make it up to him this summer is to say, here's 30, 40 million quid, go out and buy uh, a few players to replace these um, ones that have left and maybe put us in a position where we're right in the middle of the Europa League conversation next season. I think Dice, Dice has always been very reluctant to be pigeonholed as kind of a traditional British firefighting manager, but I think that's probably how he is considered now. And he's done an amazing job at Burnley, but like I say, it, it's the brand of football that I think probably costs him. And realistically, at the moment, I don't think any club, much as they might admire the job he's done, would would pay six to eight million pounds, say, in compensation for the last two years of his contract. Yet, if he if he was out of a job, if he'd left this summer and say you get to eight games into next season, whenever that is, or 10 games in, and a tired team at the club, at the bottom struggling and sack their manager, or even you know potentially showing he can be a project manager, say Villa go down and eight games into the season, sack Dean Smith. It's a championship job, but it's a club with, with big Premier League potential. He might consider that. I think, I think he's a much more attractive proposition to clubs if he's available for nothing than, than if they've got to buy him out of his, his Burnley contract. But... It is a situation that you can't really imagine Dyche without Burnley or Burnley without Dyche at the moment. Let's look at Palace for a second because, uh, as I said, there's only only two goal difference between them. The the two teams are that tight. But in terms of um, uh, managerial experience, you know, a, a man that's kind of this is probably his last job for Roy Hodgson in many ways and he's done an amazing thing with Palace since he's come in and taken over uh, a bit of a blow uh, in the defeat against Liverpool with that injury to Zaha um, where do we see them do we see them 
you know, do we see this game being a draw? Do we see uh, Palace having enough to 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 get one over on Burnley with all the trouble that's going on? Uh, where, where do we see this one going, Fergal? I think given the fact that we're all talking about how much football has changed uh, in Project Restart, it's nice to see that certain things stay the same. This is the most Monday night game of football imaginable. Um, this is honestly, this is a fixture calendar machine's dream. Uh, I... I just think uh, I just think this has got nil nil one all written all over it. Um, in terms of Palace, yeah, you're right. Zaha going off against Liverpool uh, demonstrated not only how much they rely on him, but how limited they are to create chances when when he's not on the pitch, particularly against a, a top team. Uh, I was disappointed in their performance against Liverpool. I'm not saying obviously they were going to stop Liverpool going on and winning the title, but considering how professional and ruthless they were against Burnley, um, and Hodgson has such a clear plan, and the players are absolutely regimented in, in what is asked of them from him. Um, they just fell away against Liverpool. Like they, they did, they weren't tracking runners. They, they didn't seem to have any energy in in midfield. They were losing um, markers in the box and, and conceding goals. And I think, yeah, at the end there was a couple of excellent goals from Fabinho and, and and Mane to seal the win for Liverpool. But Palace, Palace know what they are. They're not going to go down. They're not really in the Europa conversation. I think Burnley have probably got more aspirations of a Europa League finish. Um, and I just think they're going to limp over the line. I think. If they, if they manage to get top 10, I know they did that kind of parody social media video before the Liverpool game. Um, I think if they were to get top 10, I think it'd be a massive achievement considering um, the fact that they are very limited outside of Zaha and Jordan Ayew. Um, and I, I just think, I don't really see how Palace fans can expect an awful lot more considering the players they've got and the, the, the structure that Hodgson's having to work within. Yeah, I think they're at they're, they're, the the, the edge of their limits really I, I thought they might even be be struggling this year and it wouldn't I mean if Zaha goes again it, it's dependent on sort of what state the transfer market's in isn't it but you take Zaha out of that team and I think they become very sort of lacking any kind of creative thrust aren't they if, he, if he's missing tomorrow night then Burnley are always very solid defensively you, you can see Palace really struggling to to break that team down but they, they are sort of a, just a typical Hodgson side aren't they one win in three, get a draw in there and just keep plodding along and, and picking up the points. They, they don't pull up any trees, but they are efficient in, in what they do. But they, they desperately need that that stardust that Zahar offers them. And without him, I think they, they go from being a reasonable mid-table team to a, a very average team. Well, as it stands with seven games to go, both of them are only 10 points off European qualification. Uh, (laughs) But a lot would have to go wrong for that to happen. Uh, Let's look at a couple of news stories then, shall we? And um, interesting comments uh, from the new Premier League Championship winning manager, about Jaden Sancho. Yeah, he uh, he's quoted in Bild, the German newspaper, uh, saying that he thinks Sancho would look good in a red shirt. Um, he didn't specify whether that be the red of uh, Liverpool uh, or, as Ever says, the red of Manchester or the red of Bayern Munich. Um, I just think this is a little bit of a game from Klopp, and he's 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 quite good at this. Uh, he flashes those pearly whites at journalists and and doesn't answer questions fully. He just lets things kind of hang in the air, and and then we're all led to speculate about whether there's going to be a move. Obviously, United have been linked with him as well, um, and he's 
probably after Mbappe the, the hottest prospect in, in world football at the moment in terms of potential transfer moves uh, he's been excellent for Dortmund this season uh, he's shown a lot of maturity he's built on what was a lot of promise that he showed last season and, and developed areas of his game that needed to be looked at but I, I just think this summer we're going to see a dearth of 100 million plus transfers uh, all across Europe not just involving the Premier League um, and if anybody wants Jadon Sancho you're talking I would say in and around 150 million for him. Yeah, we've seen a dip in the market with with fees being paid out, and as we saw the situation with Timo Werner that Liverpool were ultimately frustrated on, they do have a structure in place at Liverpool. Yes, they are league champions, but it'd be wrong to think that they're just throwing money around. There is a a fairly strict um, framework that Klopp and his transfer committee have to work within, and you know Werner's the most blatant example of that. And I think given what would be needed to bring Sancho to Anfield. Uh, I don't think Klopp saying to the transfer committee, "Ah, but you know, come on, he's you know he's he's this good." I think the answer would be yes, but Jurgen or Mr. Klopp, I don't know what they call him. Um, <laughs> God, her Klopp, her Klopp, maybe. Uh, this is the situation that we're working in. I, I think United are more likely, given their style of uh, of transfer dealings. But I think as it stands, I, I don't see him leaving Dortmund. Um, until we're in a position where clubs have got that money to be to be thrown around, which for me could be up until twenty twenty one. Can I put a yeah. question? Can I put a question to you on this, Ty? Because you yes. you you get to speak to players a lot more. You know, um, obviously covering United, you get to speak to Ollie a bit as well. Um, I imagine right now, for a player, there aren't many managers that he'd want to play for more than you'd want to play for Jurgen Klopp. Yeah, I think that is obviously a, a a massive selling point for for Liverpool. I think it's I think it's pretty clear from the way they let Timo Werner go that Liverpool aren't going to spend much, if anything, again this summer. The Sancho would be a very good fit for that front three, and a year down the line, Salomani and Firmino are all going to be what twenty nine next next summer. So it's reaching the point where probably at least one of them will will need replacing. But I think the only way Liverpool get Sancho is if Klopp convinces him to to stay for another year at Dortmund or no one goes for him and then you could imagine him fitting into that front three and and probably being an ideal replacement which I think kind of makes it interesting for United because obviously you know, I don't think it's any secret that he's their, their top target this summer and they still want to be active and, and do and do transfer business it, it might be the case that this is almost their one opportunity to, to sign Sancho because I can't see any team realistically compete with United if, if they do go for him this year because of the financial situation. If everyone waits a year and, and Liverpool are in for him next year and maybe Real Madrid or Barcelona, then it will obviously depend on, on what United, what situation United are in next year. But might kind of make this the, the one summer they could get Sancho. And I think he'll add a lot to that team. Watch them against Sheffield United. I wrote a piece the next morning that said, if you imagine... If you put a front five of Pogba, Fernandez, Rashford, Martial, and Sancho on the pitch, it, it's not a big leap of faith to imagine that front five competing for a Premier League title. That they'd be up there in terms of Premier League attacking units, but it, it is just a case of that, that that asking price. I think you know United have, have stressed recently that there's, there's not going to be 100 million pound plus transfers, and there's not going to be multiple mega money deals. So I think it's. It's going to be a game of patience for them with with Sancho this summer. 
We mentioned Timo Werner there. Obviously, Liverpool were linked quite heavily, but uh, Chelsea have secured his signing. Already the uh, secured Zayek's signature. He's coming in, uh, I'd say, in the summer, but that's now, really, isn't it? Uh, and also, in the papers, uh, I see uh, links of uh, Declan Rice with £45 million. Yeah, um, this is an interesting one that's come come out in the last couple of days. Obviously, he was an academy player with Chelsea, got released, uh, I think, when he was... 14 or 15 and, and went to West Ham we know that he's friends with a lot of those young players that have come through with Chelsea this season Mason Mount in particular is long term buddy of his um, the story is that Lampard wants to bring him in and convert him into a centre back um, as a U team player he flicked between centre back and midfield and I think at West Ham he's played more of his football at the base of the midfield alongside Mark Noble Um I think he's found it tough going this season. He was excellent last season when he kind of burst onto the scene and was this progressive defender slash defensive midfielder. But given the situation that West Ham find themselves in, I do find it difficult for young players to progress there um, because there's so much pressure, but also because they generally find themselves in a position where experience is what they need because they tend to find themselves on the edges of a relegation battle. And generally speaking, young players find it very difficult in those situations. Um, So I think he's had a a solid season uh, without being as impressive as last season. But... um, Listen, come on. You all know my views on Declan Rice. Uh, I think he'll, I think he'll hang his claret and blue jersey next to his green jersey in his wardrobe um, if Chelsea come calling. Uh, he, he doesn't seem to have any issues with going back on his word or going back and going forward. Uh, Jim, I hope you're listening to this. Uh, so yeah, I think you know he's got he's got enough shirts in his in his wardrobe uh, for a 45 year old, let alone a, a 21 or 22, whatever age he is. Um, I think if Chelsea come calling, he would. I think he'd be interested in going back. I think his story of, of leaving Chelsea, he said he was obviously upset and frustrated as you know a kid being released from a Premier League club would be. But I don't think he holds a huge amount of ill will. Um, and if he wants to play European football and, and play for a top club, that, that's not going to happen at West Ham. Simple. Um, but as for Chelsea, I, w- I would look at the options they've got already. Is he actually improvement on the younger centre-backs they've got now? Fikayo Tomori, Andres Christensen, I'd still throw in the young centre-back uh, uh, box. I, I don't necessarily think he is, particularly if Lampard's going to have to reintegrate him as a centre-back and he's going to have to learn to play 10, 15 yards further back. And some of the old-timers love to pretend that, you know, if you're good enough, you can play anywhere and blah, 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 blah. But for a Premier League-level player, defensive midfield to centre-back is a long road it's not just five yet those five or ten yards can be a long road Eric Dyer has shown that with Tottenham um, completely different skill set in terms of what's expected and you're coming up against some of the best attacking players in, in world football so if Chelsea come calling I don't think West Ham would say no to 45 million even for uh, their beloved Mr Rice but I, I, if I was Chelsea I'd be thinking is this an area that we need to strengthen and particularly an area uh, being boosted by a player that doesn't have that much more experience than what we already have yeah, I mean, I've not really seen it with with Declan Rice this year. I, I know he'd had a, a good spell last year, but I thought when he got in the England team, he he looked out of his depth in in that role. And he, yeah, he, stick the knife really... in tie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he, he's not really kicked on this year, so I, it, it's one that doesn't make a huge amount of sense for me. Even though we we know his potential, I think the, the interesting thing with Chelsea is that they almost do everything in reverse to every other Premier League club. Obviously, they came in under Abramovich and, and rewrote the rules around the transfer market and transfer spending. Then the last couple of years, it's kind of looked as if he's been losing interest. He, he's obviously hardly there now because of his well-documented visa issues and 
they're, they've relied on youth. I know they couldn't spend last summer, but even before that, they seem to be easing back on on spending in the transfer market. And then all of a sudden, every other club's counting the cost of the, this pandemic and, and where their money's coming from. And, and he's signing checks left, right and centre again. They've obviously already got two in, looks like, you know, for Chilwell. So mm. they, they look like they want to, to take advantage of the fact that virtually every other club are, are going to have to cut their cloth and, and maybe be a bit more aggressive this summer and, and get back up there quite quickly. This time last year, Declan Rice was being touted as a possible signing for Manchester City as a long-term replacement uh, for Fernandinho, uh, which is kind of where crowbarring goes talking about another Brazilian midfielder and a combination that I have, haven't seen since yesterday when I played <laughs> them together on Pro Evo, uh, which is we could be seeing Maradona uh, and Ronaldinho on the same team sheet. Obviously, Maradona as the manager rather than the player, but still, this is something special, isn't it? This is a very, very bizarre story that's uh, come out in the Spanish media uh, this morning, which is that once, Mar- uh, sorry, once Ronaldinho, force of habit there, expecting it to be Mar- Maradona under house arrest. Once Ronaldinho's house arrest in Paraguay uh, comes to an end, Maradona wants to sign him for Gimnasia, team that he's just taken over as manager of. Um, I couldn't think of anything better, but I also couldn't think of anything worse than these two together. Uh, two gigantic egos, uh, two footballing legends, one of them just about still able to actually play football because his legs work. Um, I mean, yeah, there's going to be fireworks and ridiculous stories if this comes to pass, but I, I do not see on what planet this would be a good idea. The only way I could kind of uh, describe this to, to anyone struggling to grasp is these are the two fellas uh, in the bar that are always going to a house party that invite you and you think I won't be going to work for a week let alone waking up with a bad head tomorrow I won't be in work for a week if I if I go with these two um, I think that might even be what the Gymnasia players are thinking uh, this could be the end of my career if these two come in because it's, it's, it's going to be a demanding exercise to keep up with the two of them Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to see where it could possibly go wrong really, isn't it? It's... Um... <laughs> It, it will be interesting. I don't know if either of you two have seen the, the Maradona in Mexico documentary on, on Netflix where it follows him, follows his spell in charge of Dorados in um, in Mexico. But it did actually change my opinion of him as a manager. I think we all think he's basically just clueless, which is how he looked with, with Argentina. And obviously he's got some pretty mad ideas on the game. But it, it was quite interesting. He did seem to have some semblance of an idea of, of what he was doing there and I'm not sure tactically necessarily he knows what he's going on, but if he's got a good assistant, that might work. But man, in terms of man management and motivation, the players absolutely loved playing for him. And you could sense a real sort of unity. And when he left, they were all absolutely distraught. And I mean, it was unfortunate that I think he was late returning for his second season because he was in rehab. That's obviously not really what you want from your manager. Um, but the, the players did love playing for him. And, and by the end of it, I kind of left the idea that maybe he, he does roughly know what he's doing as a manager so be interesting to see how he gets on well we'll just have to wait and see <laughs> on that one won't we um gentlemen we're going to leave it there thank you very much for your time today time marshall thank you and fergal brennan thanks very much i'm at mcginley and remember that there will be a brand new show every single day so remember to subscribe to get the latest on that and also if you enable sports social on your amazon echo uh you can select your team and get daily updates on your premier league team every single day football social daily subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.